Joshua chapter 8, our text for this morning, we're going to cover the whole chapter, but the primary text is going to be uh, verses 30 through 35. Joshua 8, 30 through 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark, before the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. The Word of God. Let me ask you a question this morning. How faithful is God? How faithful is God? Now, we all probably have an answer we're thinking about, but I want to show you something that hopefully will demonstrate that God is faithful far beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. And just as hopefully, I want to be able to show you why this should give all of those who believe in Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, some comfort and some assurance, uh, maybe even as we enter the holiday season. We're in Joshua 8. We just watched Israel suffer this stunning defeat uh, by a relatively small force of the people at Ai, a strategic city north of Jerusalem that for all intents and purposes, it should have been something very easy for them to, to do. It should have been very easy for them to take, in particular in light of everything that happened at Jericho. Joshua went against Ai, apparently doing it without consulting the Lord. We're not sure. But whatever happened, they lost. They, they lost spectacularly. They ran from the people of Ai. And after feeling like they had been abandoned after feeling like the promise had not been met, the Lord had to set Joshua and Israel straight. And the truth of the matter was that Israel had broken covenant with the Lord. They had disobeyed him. Somebody in the camp, as it turns out, it was a guy named Achan, had taken things for himself, hid him in his tent, caused the entire camp, listen, Achan's sin caused the entire camp to lose the protection of God. Achan and his family were, his entire family and all their livestock were executed by the nation of Israel. It was a symbolic event, one that taught two vital lessons. One was the biblical concept of representation, where we saw one man pay the price for the entire camp. Now, this is not a perfect example. Achan was an imperfect snapshot of the perfect sacrifice we see in Jesus Christ, but he was kind of a shadow, imperfect picture, a glimpse at substitutionary atonement where 
One person stands in the place of, of an entire people, uh, a glimpse of Christ paying the price for our sins, a glimpse of Christ dying on the cross in our place. So we saw that, that concept of representation. But th this absolutely brutal event also showed us the horrific nature of sin and the staggering impact that sin has on men and women. God will not tolerate unholiness among his people. He's not going to have it. There will be consequences. So while we see this concept of representation in Achan's death, we simultaneously see the gut-wrenching results of having a sinner, listen, of having a sinner have to pay for his own sins. For Achan, there's no representative. For Achan, there was nobody to stand between him and the wrath of God. Now, I want you to notice that Achan's sin not only impacted him, but it impacted the people that were close around him. Because Achan's family suffered the, 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 the price as well. Achan's livestock were killed. They killed the animals that Achan owned. The family was impacted. And in a very real way, some people who were totally innocent of anything were impacted by Achan's sin because there were 35 men who died in the Battle of Ai. They had nothing to do with this. So there is no innocent sin. There is no private sin. There's no sin that you suffer alone. It impacts everyone around you. Sin is like leaven. It taints everything it touches. We need to be aware of that. It can go far beyond just a sinner. So there, there are a lot of lessons we can learn from Achan's tragic tale. And, and as we move on in Joshua 8, Achan is buried. You can go back and revisit that sometime. Just ponder that, that whole chapter 7 and see what the Lord shows you. Family buried in another heap of stones. Have you noticed this? We've got these piles of stones that are kind of marking uh, Israel's way into the promised land. This one is a reminder of God's wrath, which has been appeased, which has been vented. Chapter 8 is an amazing display of the grace that comes after the wrath. Uh, we'll take a quick look at the second battle of Ai in chapter 8. Uh, then, we'll, then we'll linger at the end of the chapter, the passage that I read. I want to explore this idea of the faithfulness of God. So our sermon for today is called The Fall of I. This is part eight in our series, uh, uh, The Promise in the Land. We're going to make two observations in chapter eight and one conclusion. If we want to have victory in our walk, we have to see two things. Number one, we have to trust in the Lord. And if we truly trust in the Lord, then that trust should lead to obedience in the Lord. And then I want to show you how if we trust in the Lord and, and we do all we can to obey him, that that will show us the, the conclusion that the Lord is faithful. It's the only possible conclusion we can have from that. And I'll show you how that links together. So let's take a look at our, our text. Israel has suffered and learned this harsh lesson about the battle of Ai. We've learned a valuable biblical principle in that lesson. When God is with them, listen, when God is with them, they have victory. When, when God is not with them, they have defeat. Left to their own devices, they lose. Trusting totally in God, they win. It's a biblical principle. 
Now, that's our first observation in our walk with the Lord. When we place our trust in Him, when we do our best to listen and do what He tells us to do, we can have victory in our walk. Conversely, when we do exactly what He tells us not to do, we, just like Israel, just like the Hebrews, we, we don't lose our position with him. We don't stop becoming his children. We're still his children. We still belong to him, but we're left to our own devices. We lose his protection, and ultimately we will fail. See, that's the lesson that Joshua and his men are learning here. When they do what God tells them to do, they'll have victory. When they go against what God tells them to do, they're going to they're gonna lose. So that, that's what we hear when God speaks to Joshua again in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8, God tells Joshua not to fear. Now, how many times do we see in the Bible, don't fear? It always comes when terror is striking God's people. <laughs> it always comes when there's something is coming to go, oh my gosh, what's going on? He said, don't fear, don't be dismayed. That's pretty stiff encouragement for a guy that's just suffered a very humiliating defeat. But you know what? Sometimes God gives his people the gift of humility. That's what's happening with Joshua. Sometimes God gives his people the gift of humility to show them how desperately they need him. So that's what's happening in Joshua's heart. With that thought ringing in Joshua's heart, God tells him to have courage, tells him that he has given them I. Make no mistake, they have earned destruction. That's what we saw in chapter 7, wasn't it? But God is true to his promise. He's given them the land, and now they're sure that that land is a gift from them because they have just proven spectacularly that they can't take it on their own. So now they go forward trusting in God. The devastation of Ai is going to be complete, just like Jericho, but this time the rules change a little bit. God graciously allows them to keep whatever spoils they get from I for themselves. And there's even a little mini lesson in that. God doesn't necessarily want his people to be rich. That's why he tells them when you go into Jericho, don't take anything for himself. But God doesn't necessarily want his people to be poor either. That's why he tells them it's okay to take whatever you want in I. What God wants from his people is for them to be obedient, for them to listen to what he says and do what he asks them to do. There are blessings involved in being obedient. So under God's guidance and under his blessing, Joshua, uh, and I'm sure as Joshua is putting together this battle plan and listening to what God's saying, he's thinking about Bethel. Bethel's only two miles from Ai. It would be natural in an environment like that for Bethel to want to help Ai to, uh, to defend themselves, uh, knowing that if I falls, they're probably going to be next. Joshua's just rolling like a steamroller through, through the land. So Joshua now has to go back, maybe facing a force that is significantly larger than it was before. So he knows that the first time they went, they sent Israel running, and now they're going back. Larger army. This is a, this is a test of their faith and their commitment to doing what God calls them to do. But this time, Joshua's learned his lesson. So he follows God's commands. But look what he does, and I love this. 
This time as he approaches Ai, he takes 30,000 men. Last time, remember, he took two or 3,000. So Joshua's hearing the Lord, but there's a, there's a pragmatic side to what he's doing. He's using his wisdom, the, Lord, the, the wisdom that the Lord's given him. He's using what he knows to be militarily correct, and he's going to meet Ai this time with an overwhelming force of, of men. He's got 30,000 men this time. He takes them there at night. They move towards Ai. They hide outside the city. Uh, meanwhile, he sends 5,000 men around to the back of the city to lie there in wait. And what happens, uh, presumably in the morning, when the king of Ai, each of these towns would have had their own king, when the king of Ai looks out and sees there's 25,000 guys in this little ravine outside the city, he and his entire force run out of the city to attack them. Now, he knows that the last time they were there, they went running, when, and he's assuming the same thing is going to happen. And certainly, that looks like what's going on, because when Joshua sees him coming, he and his 25,000 men begin to run. And then those 5,000 men behind the city, as the city empties out, going towards Joshua and his huge army, those 5,000 guys move into the city and take it over and start to burn it. It was a trick. It was a trap. It was an ambush. The king sees the city burning, turns around and sees what's going on, but you know what? It's already too late. Meanwhile, Joshua and his men stop running, turn around, and begin fighting. Joshua's main army and the 5,000 who took the city have now trapped the king of Ai and his army in between them. The city's burned. All the people are killed. Everybody except the king. The king is brutally executed. Um, you know, it's another one of those things that we look at and go, why does it have to be so violent? Well, the king led his people against the will and the army of God. And there's a price to pay for that. It is violent. It is brutal. But it's a, it's a beautiful picture of what happens to people that lead people against God. Now, the funny thing about it is the king and I are under a pile of rocks. Now we got another pile of rocks. So we got a pile of rocks at the bank of the Jordan, reminding us of God's grace. We have a pile of rocks at Jericho, reminding us of God's holiness among his people. Now we have a pile of rocks at I, reminding us of God's vengeance against all that is unholy. So here's an interesting point. All of this happens as Joshua raises his javelin and points it towards the city, just as God told him to do in verse 18. Listen to this. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. Now, this might seem a little bit trivial, but, you know, in a passage of Scripture that's as rich as this, there's a lot to be learned, and this is one of those small points that we need to learn. Why would Joshua and the way he held his javelin have anything to do with whether or not they won the battle? Didn't God tell them that he had given them eye? Well, we can conjecture. We can maybe analyze something symbolic in the javelin and the stretching out of the hand, or we can simply say that's what God told Joshua to do. Now, we're going to look at the text. That's all we can determine is that's what God told Joshua to do. See, Joshua has just learned this incredible lesson in obedience. So 
when God tells Joshua to stretch out his hand and point his javelin towards the city, Joshua does precisely what God says. He obeys the command of the Lord. He conforms to the word of God. He doesn't try to change it. He doesn't try to alter it. He doesn't try to improve upon it. He doesn't ask for an explanation. The commandment is clear. God tells Joshua precisely what he wants him to do, and Joshua does it. He obeys God. There's no negotiation. There's no discussion that occurs here. Brothers and sisters, it is so easy for so many people to negotiate their obedience with God. And you know, in, in some cases, I understand, I mean, there are passages of Scripture that are difficult to interpret, aren't there? I mean, Peter says as much about Paul's writings. Peter says, sometimes I don't understand what Paul's saying. And I think a lot of us can sympathize with that. But for every passage, it might be difficult to understand. There are probably three or four passages that are crystal clear. There are plenty of passages that are absolutely clear. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't get angry at your brother. And I can hear the negotiation starting already. Well, wait a minute. That wasn't my brother I was angry at. That was my sister. Okay? That was my neighbor. Don't judge one another. You know, there are plenty of those there, but I want to use these as an example of things God tells us not to do. Nonetheless, there are some folks that think it's okay to do them anyway. So they explain why it's okay. Now listen to this carefully. They don't always explain to you and me why it's okay. Frequently when they're explaining why it's okay, they're explaining to themselves why it's okay. They're self-justifying their behavior. They're saying, well, I can do this. I can do this because... They, 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 try, they try to negotiate these things that are clear by saying things like, well, God, you know why I'm angry. You know why I got mad. You know why I had to lie. These things must be okay because I have really good reasons for doing them. And maybe, God, if you knew all of the details that were going on in my life right now, you would excuse me from disobeying you because I've got really good reason. I, I do them because, because that person hurt me. I, I do them because those people are wrong and I'm right. I do it because I've, I've earned a right to do them. Once you know what I've been through, you'll know that, that I, I'm entitled to feel this way even though your word tells me not to. I do them because those people that I'm doing them to are not holy, and I am. I do them because, because well, because I'm their father. I'm their mother. I'm their son. I'm their daughter. I'm their grandmother, whatever. I have a, a certain role that allows me to do these things, and, and you know what? And they're not meeting my expectations, so I'm angry. And here's the one that I like. Well, God, I do things this way because that's how you made me. It's not my fault, it's yours. If you hadn't made me an angry person, 
I want to act angry. So make me nice and I'll be nice. You ever anybody say that? It's just the way I am. Just the way I am when Jesus Christ is all about transformation. Listen, if, if, if you ever, if you ever find yourself justifying your behavior, if you ever have to explain to anyone else, or in particular to yourself, why something is you, you do is okay, even when the Bible says not to do it, it would be good for you to recall Joshua and his javelin. Because Joshua knew by that time that if he obeyed God, he'd have victory, and if he disobeyed, he would have defeat. Joshua had already learned that that lack of obedience meant a defeat in his walk with the Lord. And now he sees that unhesitating obedience brings victory. He trusts God. He trusts what God says. So his trust leads to obedience. It's our second observation. We truly trust God. It should lead to obedience. Obedience leads to victory. You want the abundant life? You want a victorious life? You do what you can to, to obey God's word. So eyes captured, cities burn. 12,000 people die. A heap of stones goes up. We've got another memorial, another reminder. All this happens, and then in verse 30, Joshua builds an altar. Now, that's appropriate. He's thankful. He's gotten a victory. He wants to honor God wants to worship him, gesture of thanksgiving, a gesture of honor. But look where Joshua builds this altar. It's at Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal. Let me show you where Mount Ebal is. It's about 30 miles north of Ai. It's fairly, it's a, a day and a half walk for an army. Why would they go that far? Why wouldn't they just build the altar there at I, where the victory was? You would think it would be a fitting memorial. Well, there are a couple of good reasons why they go that far. First off, look at the map. The first thing you should see is that Joshua is beginning to divide the country up. He, he made a division north and south. Now he's making one east and west. Um, it's going to make it harder for all those little kingdoms because every city had its own king, its own kingdom, its own resources. So dividing things up is going to make it harder for those kingdoms to join forces and battle against them. So they move from Ai to a town called Shechem. In the New Testament, it's called Sychar. And the road between the two cities, if you look at the map closely, it's there on your handout, follows the crest of the hills. Uh, that's how an army would move. They would not move in the valleys. It was too hard to be attacked, too easily attacked when they were down in the valley, so they would walk, walk along the top of the hills. And if you could command the top of the hills, you could command the entire area. So by the time they arrive in Shechem, they control Jericho, they control Ai, they control Shechem, and all the areas in between, they control the roads in between. So there's just good military strategy there. But you know what? There's more than military strategy happening here. So you take a look at verse 31. They're doing this just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man is wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord 
and sacrifice peace offerings. So the first thing we see is that Moses told them, they went to Shechem because Moses told them to go there. And when they got there, Moses told them what to do. He gave them instructions on how to build an altar. Now that comes out of Exodus chapter 20. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offering, your peace offerings, your sheep and your auction. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. So that altar that was built to honor and worship God is not an altar of finished stones. It's kind of curious, and there's another little sidebar we need to pay some attention to. They were to be rough cut. Literally, they were supposed to be stones that they would go find and pile them up and make them into an altar. Now, if I were designing an altar that I wanted to honor God, I would want it to be as good looking as I could make it. I would get my finest stone cutters and my most talented people to hew these stones and to make them smooth and to pile them up and assemble them so that when the altar was done, it would look nice. At least it would look nice to me. But listen carefully. Man cannot improve upon the things that God designs. Man cannot make God's things look better. And whatever idea I would come up with for an altar, however fabulous it may look, it would not hold sway with how God saw that altar. So this whole idea of altar and hewn stones is going to be a significant point for Israel as they occupy uh, the promised land. As a matter of fact, you've got to go into Judges to see, but at some point they begin fashioning finished altars. Altars that look good. They usually had four points on them and they had smooth sides and there was a flat top where they could put sacrifices. And for every tribe that fashions one of those altars, there are the ones that fall. It starts with the tribe of Dan up north who took the wrong land, who took the land that was not allotted to them. So this is kind of, it's a minor point, but it's something that we need to understand. We just can't make God's plans better. We can't imagine how magnificent God's plans are, so we can't improve upon them. And so we find out how to make the altar. Where was the first altar in the promised land to be erected? You have to go to Deuteronomy 27 to find that. This is where Moses is giving instructions to Israel on what to do after they cross Jordan. Keep in mind, Moses tells them to do all this stuff before they cross the Jordan, before they attack Jericho, before they're defeated at Ai, before they get the victory at Ai. And here's what Moses says in, in Deuteronomy 27. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, keep the whole commandment that I command you today, and on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal. Moses sends them to Mount Ebal. And you shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Now, we've got two things happening here. Uh, we have 
Joshua setting up these stones and covering them with plaster and writing the law on them, and you have the building of the altar. The stones that are plastered are not the altar. There's two separate things happening here. You shall wield no iron on them, the stones of the altar. So did you hear what just happened? Moses, who never entered the promised land, he wasn't allowed to go in because he had stumbled as well. Moses tells Joshua to take Israel to Mount Ebal and build an altar there. Now you got to let that sink in for just a second. Moses doesn't say, if you get that far. Moses doesn't say, if everything goes according to the way you understand the plan to be going, I want you to go to Ebal. Moses says, you shall. You shall go to Mount Ebal. And a few verses later, Moses tells them what to do after the stones are cut and the altar is built. So Moses is laying out a whole worship service here. That happens in Deuteronomy 27, starting with verse 9, going all the way down to Deuteronomy 29, verse 1. It's a long passage. I asked some of you to read it a couple weeks ago. Maybe you can review it again today. But here's how Joshua describes those instructions they received from Moses in Joshua 8. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. Now, I had the opportunity to visit Mount Gerizim in May. Uh, I, I got to stand on Mount Gerizim and look, look over this valley. It, uh, it, the, I saw the ruins of Shechem uh, there in a city that is now called Nablus, Nablus, Palestinian-controlled. But a lot of the ancient biblical sites have been preserved. Matter of fact, Jacob's well is there. Uh, the, uh, this is also uh, known as Sychar. Um, Sychar is where Jesus runs into the Samaritan woman at the well. Here's what Nablus looks like today. That's Mount Gerizim to the right of the picture. That's Mount Ebal to the left. And uh, Nablus sits, the center, city center of Nablus sits right in that narrow portion between the two mountains. On the way there, it's just an interesting note, we passed the place where the Samaritans still practice the Passover. I read about this before. There's still two or three hundred Samaritans left. Uh, they still practice the ancient rituals. When I read about it originally, I thought, well, they're out in the wilderness somewhere. This place looks like a county fair. There are bleachers set up. There are stages set up. There are walkways and everything. But every year they gather there and they, pr they practice their version of the Passover. So standing on Mount Gerizim, looking down into the valley... You can see the remains of Shechem in the middle of Nablus. There they are, right there, where, where the red circle is. That's about, right there, is about where the ark would have been placed. Here's a closer look at the ruins of Shechem, or Sikar, that brown spot right in the middle there. Directly across from Mount Gerizim is Mount Ebal. It's about a half mile or so away. It's really not that far. So, Half of the nation lines up in front, and, you know, the term for in front there is highly nuanced. 
the King James says that they were up beside. It can mean on, it can mean in front of, it can be near, it can be all over. So we've got a good translation in front, but understand that it's nuanced. Half of the nation stands on Mount Ebal. They're going to pronounce curses for disobedience. The other half of the nation stands on Mount Gerizim. They're going to pronounce blessings for obedience. With the priests and the ark in the middle, they read the law. The entire law is read. It's, it's a poignant reminder of who these people are. It's a reminder of how they got there. It's a reminder of what they were doing there. They just had this brutal lesson on the consequences of disobedience to the Father. They've come. They've just seen the Father's presence, the, the Father's power, the Father's glory in their victory at I. And now after this sobering incident in which they realize how desperately they need God, God takes them back to the law. And with the reading and the understanding of the law, what happens? The covenant is renewed. The relationship is restored. There's been a sacrifice. Blood has been shed. The relationship is, is brand new. But God doesn't stop there. He instructs Moses to tell them when they get there how to apply the law. It's not enough just to know the law. They've got to live the law. They've got to be living examples of the law. They've got to put God on display in how they conduct their affairs with each other and how they conduct their affairs with the outside world. So before the blessings and the curses are pronounced, the Levites are to bring clarification of how the law is to impact the way they are to live. And it comes in a series of pronouncements of curses. Now, I'm going to need your help with this, okay? So I'm going to read the, the consequence, and when I say, and all the people said, amen, you're going to say what? Amen. We've got some visual aids for you here. <laughs> Deuteronomy 27, starting with verse 14, listen to this. Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. You like that? Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Cursed be, any, cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say. Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say. Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say. Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say. Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether she's daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say. Amen. Cursed is, in, is anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say. Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say. Amen. Now, some of you are going, I never did any of that stuff. I'm okay. I could say amen to that. It's pretty easy. There's one more. There's one more. Listen to this one. Cursed be anyone who does not conform the words of this law by doing them. 
and all the people shall say, Amen. Listen, these curses are not exhaustive. They're meant to be examples. They're meant to be, they're intended to be examples of how the law should apply to God's people. So once these guidelines for holy living are made clear to the entire nation, Joshua is to have half of Israel pronounce blessings that they will receive if they're obedient to the law, and the other half pronounce curses that they're going to receive if they're disobedient to the law. I'm not going to read all of them. Again, uh, you can take a look at them later. Deuteronomy chapters 27 through 29. Great discussion over dinner. Uh, but the blessings start in Deuteronomy 28. And, and understand that although they're there in Deuteronomy 28, they would not be pronounced until Joshua chapter 8. They run from Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14. Let me give you the first four verses here. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Now it goes on from there, but you, you can review it all later again. Take a look at it if you haven't. Suffice it to say, though, that those blessings for obedience cover every possible area of Christian living. It set them up as, uh, as God's people being set apart, as being something different, as him being with them and, and showing the world that his presence is among his people. And as great as those blessings are, the curses are grave and even more somber. They start in Deuteronomy 28, 15 and run all the way. Listen, the curses run for 53 verses. 53 verses, one of the longest chapters in the Bible. All the way to Deuteronomy 29, 1. Here's just a few of them. Listen to this. But if you will not obey, now these people just saw the power and the presence of God, amen? And God says, if you obey, I'm going to do all these great things to you. If you don't obey, listen to what's going to happen. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed you will be when you go out. So you can see that the first set, the first couple verses there, are the exact opposite of what the blessings are. But it goes downhill from there. Look at verse 20. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And it gets worse. Verse, verse 26. Listen. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. And that long passage ends with this chilling note. Deuteronomy 29.1. These are the words of the covenant 
that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab beside the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. Now notice that. First thing you see is that he hasn't abrogated the commandments at Horeb. This is over and above, in addition to. And listen closely. It's a covenant. Starting in chapter 27, going through chapter 28, it is a covenant, all of it. These are promises, brothers and sisters. The promise of blessing if they obey. The promise of curses if they don't. The promise of abundance if they do what God tells them to do. And the promise of disaster if they don't. This is significant. And maybe even more significant is look when the covenant is made. In Moab. It's made when Moses is still alive. All of it long before Israel crosses the Jordan. All of it long before they take Jericho. All of it long before they suffer defeat at Ai. All of it long before they have success at Ai. All of it long before they get to Shechem. Look at what happens in chapter 8, verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. And the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Joshua did it all. He did everything he was told. How faithful is God? He's totally faithful. He's totally faithful. But you know, if you've been following the story, you might be, well, well, wait a minute, John. I, I don't know that this proves that God is faithful. Wasn't Joshua the one who was faithful here? Isn't he the one that did everything he was told to do? How can we say God is faithful here? Well, again, remember what happened at Ai. Joshua and probably the rest of Israel thought that God had abandoned them. They thought that God had sent them there to die, that they were going to be killed by all these people that were going to rise up against them the whole time that they were being defeated, the whole time that they were doubting God and even accusing Him, God had already made plans for them to be in Shechem. Remember, Moses never said if, he said you shall. It was a promise, one that Joshua and Israel forgot. They got so overwhelmed by their situation that they forgot the promises of God. But God didn't. God didn't forget his promises. If you look back in chapter 7, th- th- this even gets more amazing the more when you thread everything together. If you look back in chapter 7, Joshua made this bold and maybe dangerous accusation towards God. In, in Joshua 7, verse 8, Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Let me give you the Kavakis paraphrase here. Okay, God, so if we get killed, what are you going to do about that? You're going to be embarrassed. How are you going to defend yourself then, God, when all your people are lying dead in the battlefield? 
God knew the outcome. Didn't he? God knew the outcome. Do you see the incredible grace of God? Do you see the incredible faithfulness of God shed upon his people even when they doubt him? Even when they break faith with him? So we learn that God is faithful. But we also learn that his grace is not dependent on us or the strength of our faith. His grace is dependent upon him. And his faithfulness is not in us, brothers and sisters. It's in himself. His faithfulness is in the truth of his word, not our capability to walk it out. If it were, we'd all be doomed. Well, we learned that about God. He's faithful. But we learned something about the law too, didn't we? We learned that it's a guideline for how to live a holy life. Uh, there are consequences for going against it. And, but, but listen, and, and, I, and I know this is not a popular teaching in the church today, but if you look at the law, and I'm talking about capital, the capital L law, I'm not talking about the ceremonial sacrificial law, all of which has been done away with when Christ came and sacrificed his life. All the ceremonies, all of the ritualistic sacrifices were, were set aside. But I'm talking about the commandments. Yes, we have freedom in Christ. We are free in Christ. We are free from the consequences of the law, which are death. We're not going to die because of the law. But there are those who claim that we are free from anything that demands obedience to those commandments. I get the emails all the time. There are those who call us WBF legalists when we bring them up. To those folks, I would say, go back and look at those guidelines we recited in Deuteronomy 27, 14 through 28. Write that down. Write Deuteronomy 27, 14 through 28 down. And what I want you to do, and what I would say to those people that say that we're free from this, is I want you to read down that list and tell me which one of those things you're free from. Tell me which one of those things you can do. Tell me which of the Ten Commandments Christ died to allow you to commit. You want to be a murderer? You want to lie? You want to covet? You want to hold other gods before you? The answer is none. none of, we're not allowed to do any of them. <laughs> he, he died to set us free from the death that we earn when we violate any of them. And all of us have violated some of them if all of us haven't violated all of them. So we're all in need of grace. But let me tell you something. Those were the guidelines for holy living in the 17th century B.C., and they're the guidelines for holy living today. We just need God to get us through They're no longer killers, but if you look at the law properly, you see that it's a gift of grace from God, leading us away from defeat, leading us away from I, and taking us to Shechem leading us away from hopelessness and taking us to God's promises, leading us away from our fears and taking us towards God's blessing. 
We strive for them. We're never going to be able to complete them. We're never going to be able to satisfy them perfectly. But with the help and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will progress towards them. Amen? Now, I like that. You like that? Those are good lessons for today, aren't they? I have more. Let me show you this before you go home. Let me show you how astoundingly faithful God is, because we have seen that he is totally faithful. Amen? Let me show you how astoundingly faithful God is. Here's a picture of Mount Ebal, taken from Mount Gerizim. And I want you to notice something about Mount Ebal. Now, when I went to Israel in May, my teacher at the beginning of the trip told me, you're going to learn how awesome God is through geography and terrain. I went, oh, no, what have I signed up for? <laughs> okay, this, this was part of it, because everywhere we went, we saw something incredible about God. So there's Mount Ebal. Almost the entire mountain, listen, is a natural amphitheater. In particular, this part right in the middle, the part that's highlighted there. It's a natural amphitheater. And if you were able to stand on Mount Ebal and look over at Mount Gerizim, you would see it has the same feature. These two mountains centered on this valley is one, are one giant acoustic bowl. So when a group of people, I mean, you take a group of people out to two mountains at the Blue Ridge and have them shout at each other, they're never going to hear each other. What'd they say? I don't know, I can't hear. You stand in these bowls, they can, they can pronounce these blessings and curses and hear each other absolutely perfectly. It, it, it is absolutely incredible. I want you to think about this for a moment. How faithful is God? God planned for this moment at Shechem, not just from the time that Moses was in Moab, but from the creation of the world. God formed these mountains in such a manner that when he brought his people there, they would be able to hear his word. Listen, God prepared a place for his people to worship him and hear his word. He prepared a place. See, that's what the altar was all about. The altar was about worshiping God. That's what the recitation of the law was all about. Hearing his word. He brought his people together so they could hear his word and worship him. Fantastic history lesson, John. What do I go home with? Listen carefully. If Christ is your Lord and Savior... If you have repented from your sinful ways and turned towards him, he's made a similar promise to you, hasn't he? Pastor Scott read it at the beginning of the service. John 14, 1. This is Jesus Christ talking to his children. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You see the lesson that God is teaching us in where he took them at Shechem and how he built these mountains. He prepared a place for them. If he is your Lord and Savior, he's prepared a place for you. Now let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like Joshua? Have you ever felt defeated? Have you ever felt like God has abandoned you, turned his back on you? Have your circumstances ever become so overwhelming that you can't see through them to the end? God can. God knows where the end is. He knows where you're going. He died for you so that you don't have to. God says, I know what you're going through. My son felt that way on the cross. How do you think he felt when he said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He felt like I abandoned him. He felt like I turned my back on him. But I didn't abandon him. I didn't leave him. And I'm not going to leave you. I've prepared a place for you. God says in this passage, I got my people to Shechem and I will get you where I promised I would take you. All you have to do is trust me, he says. Be obedient to me. And know, know that I'm faithful even when you're not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible faithfulness. Thank you for an incredible display of your sovereign, your sovereign authority over all the creation. Thank you for an incredible display of your plan working itself out from the beginning of time through the history of your people so that we can know, Father, that your plan will work itself out in our history, in our path, in our walk. We thank you for the assurance of our salvation, Father. We thank you for the encouragement to strive, Father, to strive, not for perfection, but to strive to lead holy lives as you instructed your people to. May we take that to heart, Father. And may, when we walk in that manner worthy of our calling, may you be glorified and honored. In Jesus' name, amen.